Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. And so if you have a pew Bible uh, in the pew back in front of you, it is going to be on page 814. Um, And so you can grab that Bible and turn to page 814, and we're going to read uh, our passage in just a second. But first, just just for those of you who've been following along with our our published schedule, uh, we didn't put the asterisk that said subject to change, but anytime there's a sermon schedule, it is subject to change. Um, and so the, the plan was to cover all of chapter 10 this morning, um, but, but as Will and I looked at it and talked about it this week, there's just too much um, in chapter 10 to cover in one week. Um, and so instead of extending the, the sermon time double, we just split it up over two Sundays, which I think you will appreciate. Um, but so, so the plan is, Lord willing, we're going to get through verse 15 this week, and then next week we're going to continue uh, 16 through 42. Actually, we'll go into verse 1 of chapter 11, um, which is the, the clear ending. And so ju- just so you remember, this is the second discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. So we had the Sermon on the Mount was his first discourse, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7. And this second discourse, which some call the, the mission discourse, is all of chapter 10. And so we're going to look at this under the heading of the King's Commission. And so this week we'll look at the King's Commission Part 1, and Lord willing, next week, the King's Commission Part 2. Um, so let's, let's read uh, the, the first 15 verses, and then I'll pray for us, and then we will we'll talk through those first 15 verses. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 10, it says this, And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and authority to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's our passage this morning. Let let me pray for our time. Well, Father, as we read these verses and as as we examine and study and think about your word, I pray that you'd help us, those of us who have, who have trusted in Christ, those who follow him, help us to, 
um, in be encouraged in our pursuit of following Christ. And for those here who have not yet repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, would, would today be the day that through your word, by your spirit, that, that people are convicted and choose to follow Jesus. And so I pray that this, this word would do the work that you intend for it to do in the time that we have here together this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, there's two points here in these 15 verses, and and so the outline is going to be verses 1 through 4. The first point, Jesus calls the 12, and then secondly, verses 5 through 15, Jesus instructs the 12. So we're going to have this calling of the 12, and then the instructing of the 12, and this instruction will continue into next week, but, but these first 15 verses break down into those two sections. And so, look there at verses 1 through 12 and the calling of the 12. Now, as we come to verses 1 and 2, now, maybe you don't realize, but when the Bible was first written, when the Gospel of Matthew was, was first recorded and, and then passed around to be read by, by different Christians, there weren't verses and chapters. And, and so as they come to verses 1 and 4, it's not a new chapter with new verses. It's just a continuation of what happened prior. And so I just want to remind you of what just occurred at the end of chapter 9, because remembering what just happened sets the stage and, and highlights or emphasizes the significance of what happens in verses 1 and 2. And so last week at the end of chapter 9, we, we see Jesus looking out over the crowds and he sees them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he is, he is moved to compassion. So, so he sees these people and he's, he's filled with compassion for them because they need a shepherd. And what Jesus says to his disciples is he, looking out on them, says, guys, the, the, the harvest is plentiful, that there's plenty of work to be done. But he doesn't say, so get busy doing it. Instead, he says, what you're to do is pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out his workers. And so the disciples are, are brought into this compassionate prayer. They, they see people in need, and, and if they're, they're moving towards the heart of their master, they're, they're, they're feeling this compassion, thinking, oh, Lord, send out workers. We don't know that they are, 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 are aware of the fact that they're going to be the workers, but, but we assume Jesus is bringing them into this prayer and recognizing the need and their desire for God's will to be done. And so as we come into chapter 10, after saying pray, for laborers into the harvest, chapter 10, the very next verse is Jesus calls his disciples and sends them out. And so they are very clearly to be understood as the answer to their own prayers. They're being sent out, not as just some, some new assignment, but on the very assignment about which they had just been praying and called to pray. And so they are being sent out as representatives of the compassionate king to labor for the kingdom in the ministry that Jesus has been carrying out up to this point. They are now entered into laboring with Jesus as co-laborers with him. And so look there at verse one, he called to him the 12 disciples. And when he calls them together, this is an official calling together and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal, notice the wording, every disease and every affliction. Now, if you've been with us through this gospel, we recognize the activities here because these things, these activities have been part of Matthew's gospel thus far. These things have been a major part of the ministry of Jesus. I mean, we spent all of chapters eight and nine highlighting the authority of Jesus. He's exercising miracle after miracle after miracle, and his authority is being put on display. 
so that people are seeing with their own eyes him heal the paralytic. And the centurion is seeing him raise the deceased daughter. The disciples are seeing him calm the sea. The townspeople are, are seeing the, the once demon-possessed men now free of demons. And in all of these circumstances, as Jesus is, is performing all of these miracles, as Matthew has recorded, the authority of Jesus has been the main point. And these people, Matthew has recorded, as they see this authority on display, they are amazed that God would give such authority to men. So they recognize this is authority unlike we've ever seen in these activities, in these miracles. But also, when Matthew concluded the Sermon on the Mount, the response to Jesus' words was, we've never heard anything like this before, specifically because of his authority. I mean, Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 said, when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And so the authority of Jesus has been a main contention of the gospel writer. Matthew wants us to recognize the authority of Jesus in both his teachings and in his miracles. And so when Jesus is calling his disciples and he's giving them authority, we know what that authority looks like because we've seen it exercised over and over. But it's not just the authority that we should recognize from verse one of chapter 10. Notice as he sends out the 12, he sends them out to heal every disease and every affliction. And that same wording has been used of Jesus and his ministry of healing. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's Matthew 4.23. And then last week, Matthew 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease and every affliction. And so this specific wording has been used of the ministry of Jesus, and now he's calling his disciples to do the exact things that he did. And so when we read that Jesus called the 12 and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction— we are not left wondering what's the purpose of this commission. He is sending them out to do the exact same things that he has done. I mean, mean, that's clear. These 12 men are going to be the continuation or the extension of the ministry of Jesus. And so their mission, their ministry, their goal is the exact same, to proclaim the kingdom. They want people to know that the king is on the scene, that the kingdom has come and that they are required, that people are required to respond to the message of the kingdom. So so he's commissioning them. It's as if there's going to be 12 mini Jesuses all over invading invading Galilee in the the region. And so he commissions them in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles, and notice that word apostles, we know them as disciples. The apostles is is an unofficial designation because he's going to send them out. The the term apostle is is the sent one or the commissioned one. So, So he's saying the 12 that he sent, and he lists all 12 of them. I don't want to go into detail. I mean, this would be a great, maybe a personal study to to go through the New Testament looking at the 12 disciples and and how they they occur over multiple times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But we're not going to go into detail. But but the the two points that I'll make about this list is is there are several places, the Gospels and in Acts, where where the, the disciples are listed. And there's some variation. But the one thing that's always true of every list is who's first and who's last. Peter is always listed first. No matter what the list is, Matt, or Peter is the first disciple, which, which conveys to us he is the unofficial leader of the disciples, which, which makes it even more remarkable when he denies Jesus at the end of his life. 
and the patience and the, and the grace that Jesus extends to Peter when he restores him. But Peter's always first and Judas is always last. And we know why Judas is always last. He didn't make it. Right? He, he didn't persevere. So, so Judas is always in last place. In fact, in the book of Acts, Judas has, has gone and now his, his position is filled by another. And so that's always the case, but, but other cases where there's different variations, they're all understandable in light of the nature of, of list. Maybe one gospel writer highlights a different order, or maybe one gospel writer refers to one disciple by Peter and one by the name Simon. It wasn't uncommon for people to have multiple names. Okay, so, so the, the, the difference is, is they're all understandable. The point of these 12, these are the 12, Right? These are clearly identified as his group. And within the group, there are different groupings, but these are the 12. And so the group of the disciples are called and Jesus is sending them out. It's a genealogy of the future, as it were. These are the 12 that are going to be the backs on which the church goes forward. And what I find amazing Yes, I know that there are others who follow Jesus. So, so these are 12 and there are others following him. I know that's true. But what I always find amazing is that this group of 12 men are humanly responsible for the spread of the gospel. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about the gospel now, where there's a gospel. Now, there are places in the world where there's no gospel witness, right? And we are aiming to, we are praying for missionaries to go to the unreached peoples. But, but majority, well, maybe not majority, there, there's a gospel witness in a lot of the world. And where there's a gospel witness, it stemmed from Jesus and these 12. I mean, isn't that pretty amazing? I mean, think about it. Down through the ages, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem in the first century, all the way to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newport News, Virginia, in the 20th century, where the gospel came to me, right? It was on the backs of these 12 and their mission. I mean, the message of the kingdom has made its way to me and to you if you're a follower of Jesus because of this group of disciples. And I just think that's pretty remarkable. I mean, in one sense, there's no backup plan. They are the plan. I mean, I wonder, this is speculation, mere speculation, but I wonder if there's, in the heavenly records, there's this family tree where it's like, oh yeah, Nathan Cecil came to faith in Newport News, Virginia in, in, in the 20th century and his family tree goes back to Bartholomew who shared the gospel with this person who, I mean, maybe it's speculation, but I think the point I'm trying to convey is that the gospel is, is contingent on these men going forward and, and carrying out this great commission. Jesus is going to commission them to carry out the mission of the church. And so it's remarkable in that way. It's almost unbelievable. However, when we consider what Jesus does in verse one, it's not that unbelievable. Do you remember what Matthew, did you notice what he said? I, I didn't mention it because I want to save it to now. Look at what he does in verse one. He calls the 12 disciples and he gave them authority. He gave them authority. So he commissions them after he gives them all that they need. He gives them his authority. As I thought about this, th- this isn't Bill Belichick or, or Phil Jackson or Joe Torrey or Nick Saban, who lost last night, if you didn't know, right? it isn't this great manager or coach sitting down his team and just saying, hey, here's the game plan. We're, we're going to run the ball a lot. Or, hey, we, we just want to work the count and get past this pitch. There, there, it's not just a game plan. It's so much more than that. Jesus is preparing them for their role in the spread of the church after his death and resurrection, but he's not sending them out as it's a 50-50 chance. 
Vegas is not taking bets on are they going to succeed or not because Jesus is giving them his authority. They cannot fail. And so, so it's not unbelievable because Jesus is giving them what they need to carry out the mission. I mean, we've seen the clear authority of Jesus throughout this gospel. There's no contest. The, the demons and nature and sin has, has no chance against the Son of God. And so he's commissioning them as the one who has authority and is giving it to them. I mean, that's remarkable that he would trust these 12 men with his authority to carry out his mission. He gives them the only thing that will enable their success. He's commissioning them, but he's also empowering them. Which is going to lead us to the next section, specifically the the instructions that Jesus gives them. But before we do, I just want to make a a quick point of application here, a point that, that should never fail to encourage us as well as humble us which is simply this, and, and the application point is the folly of God. Now, I put folly in quotation marks, and I use that term very carefully, but here's what I mean. When you see Jesus calling these 12 men to carry out the mission, the global mission, the worldwide mission of the King of Kings, I, I mean, from a worldly perspective, from the viewpoint of effective leadership or organizational planning, Jesus is a fool. If we know what Jesus intends to happen where, where, where Jesus intends for, for this message to go, the fact that he chooses these 12 from a worldly perspective says, he's crazy. He chooses these 12 men. Now, of course, there were reputable members of society who followed Jesus, like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or Jairus or the Roman centurion. So, so there are, are well-known people, there are respectable people who follow Jesus, but they aren't of this group. Here, his closest associates, the leaders of the fledgling church, are, one commentator said, quote, the dregs of society. The dregs of society. That's who Jesus chooses. And I just want to step back and recognize this is the plan of God. This is his modus operandi, his MO. This is what God does. The Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth would would say in his letter almost the the, the same thing as what's happening here. Paul describes it. He says to the church at Corinth, to these Christians, later, this is after Jesus goes, he says, first, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. He's not saying none, but he's saying not many. This is not the norm. He continues, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that purpose no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's how God operates. Very clearly, Paul identifies the Christian community as those who are foolish, weak, low, and despised. And he identifies the Christian community in those terms, not only because it's true, but specifically because it is in light of those truths that God is seen as wise, strong, holy, worthy, right? When God uses foolish, weak, frail people and does things that only God can do, the credit goes to God alone. 
There's no other way. Why are we so set on being seen as strong and powerful and of noble birth? Why do we aspire for the things that the world says? That's what you should be aiming at. The follower of Christ has always rejected those things, turned our backs on those things and pursued the things of lowliness and and being despised. This is the the way that God operates. Jesus doesn't call the likely or the seemingly qualified. Jesus calls those who he wants to call. And he does so in order that it might be clear that he is the Lord. And so the point of application is simply let us, those of us who have been called to follow Christ, recognize our standing before him and recognize that regardless of our giftings, regardless of our ministry experience or success, let us recognize that our only legitimate boast is nothing from here. It is only in the Lord who's called us. He's our boast. He's one who qualifies us. He's one who equips us. He's the one who sends us. He's the one who makes us successful and effective. So let us boast in the Lord. So Jesus calls these 12. Well, well, let's look at next, the second point, verses 5 through 15. He instructs the 12. So so he he calls them and he's giving them power and authority. Now he's going to instruct them on what they're to do. Now throughout this, the rest of this, through verse 5, all the way through the end of chapter 10... Right? There's this, this dynamic going on where, where Jesus is talking to the 12, but he's also talking to those who extend beyond the 12. Right? So, so there's this tension here. So, so here, clearly, he's talking to his disciples. The 12, he sends out instructing them. So, so there is a, a contextual limitation here. And if you, look, if you just let your eyes go to chapter 11, verse 1, Matthew concludes by saying, when he had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on. And so the context is clearly the 12, and that is the the primary context and and the limitation here. However, especially as as we get into next week's passage, the scope of this discourse does extend further than 12. He's going to address things that are going to be true of the followers of Christ that come far after, long after the disciples. And so we'll see that some of the things that Jesus says applies to all those who would come after the 12, all those who would claim the name of Christ and be followers of him. And so while verses 5 through 15 are, are pretty clearly for the 12, even here we're going to see that, that there are specific ways that these instructions of Jesus have to do with us here and now. So let's look at verses 5 through 15. Look there at verse 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. So here's what he says. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So so this is the scope. It's a very specific scope, and it's a very geographically limited scope. As he sends out these 12, he wants them to focus on where they are. They're in Galilee. He says, I don't want you to leave here. Don't go outside of the Jewish territory. Go to the Jews, the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And and when he says the lost sheep, he doesn't mean like, well, there's some of Israel that aren't lost. Don't go to them. He he understands the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel to be the entire house of Israel who the Apostle Paul would, would define as all have gone astray. So, so at this point, as Jesus is here, the entire house of Israel, the, the Jewish people have gone astray. And he's saying, go get them. Take this message to them. They all like sheep have gone astray, wandering, betraying, going astray of their God. And so Jesus sends these 12 to the Jews, not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And the main point I think it's clear is that he wants to prioritize the ministry of his disciples among the Jews. These Jews as a whole had abandoned God. And so Jesus says, go first to my people. Go to the Jews first. 
And as we, we read that, we recognize that is what Jesus is emphasizing, but we also recognize even in the Gospel of Matthew thus far, Jesus has taken his ministry outside of Jew- Jewish lands. He, he's gone to the, to the Gerasenes, to, to where there's two demoniacs, and, and he's ministered there. So he's gone into Gentile land himself. So he's not opposed to the Gentiles hearing. We, we, we got to get that straight. He, he's limiting this, but it's a temporary limitation. In fact, one of the most well-known verses in the, the Gospel of Matthew is the Great Commission where Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the world, to make disciples of all nations, which means this prioritization of the Jews doesn't negate the heart of God for all nations, a heart that was on display in the calling of Abraham. But as we see here, this limitation, this, this primary ministry of Jesus is for the repentance of Israel. That is his primary, as he's ministering, that's his primary purpose. He wants Israel to repent. And in fact, it's after his resurrection and ascension in the book of Acts that we see the gospel going beyond Jerusalem. His primary heart is for Israel to repent. And in fact, the apostle Paul, if you look through the book of Acts, that's what he does when he goes to a a Gentile town. If there's a Jewish synagogue, that's where he goes first. He goes to Jews first and, and often he's kicked out. He says, okay, I went to the synagogue, but now I'm, I'm going to speak freely. There, there's this pattern of the Jew first. It's not a, a permanent pattern, but it is the pattern that we see on display here in the sending out of the 12. And so he gives the, the, the limitations, but he also gives the content of this ministry. Look at what he calls him to do in verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, this is what you do. As you're going, proclaim this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So proclaim this, verse 8, and do this. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Right? So this is the content. They're doing what Jesus has been doing. Right? They're to proclaim a message and to perform miracles. They're to carry out a ministry of words and a ministry of works. That's what they're to do. They're to carry out the ministry that Jesus is giving them of words and works, the, the ministry that Jesus has modeled. And it's not just any words, it's the kingdom of heaven has come. That's what they're to proclaim, which is the exact word that Jesus had proclaimed. These disciples are extensions of the ministry of Jesus. The difference, the only difference being that they are proclaiming Jesus as the king, whereas Jesus is saying, I'm the king. But they are to proclaim the kingdom is here. And it's because of Jesus, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. But it's not just the words that are the same. The works are almost identical. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. All these things Jesus has already done. And they, having received his authority, are going to go do the same exact things. And so again, this is a continuation. He is sending them on his mission. He continues in verse 8. Not only the content of their their mission or ministry, but but he gets to to the topic of compensation. I mean, if you're the disciples... And if you want to assume the worst about them, I mean, think about what, what they've, they've seen happen so far. Jesus has been the one getting all the fanfare, right? When, when, when people recognize them, it's just because they're with Jesus, right? He's been the one. Maybe they, they probably didn't ask for autographs back then, but if they did, Jesus would be the one who they're like, hey, I want your autograph, Jesus. Hey, disciples, can you get me to Jesus? Right? He's the one whose reputation is growing. He's the, he's the one whose popularity is growing. He's the one who probably has the, the, the verified blue check mark on social media. Right? He's the one. And now he's saying, hey guys, 
you're going to do exactly what I've been doing. Surely part of them is thinking, now's our turn. We're on the rise. Now we're going. We're going to shoot to the top. People are going to be coming to us. And part of that temptation would have been, hey, we can charge for this. We could be supported for our ministry, but we could, we could have a call-in number, a call for prayer and, and send money and, and you're, you give us your first use and God's going to bless you. Just give me all your, all your, all your money and, and you're going to just be, be fine and dandy because, because I'm an apostle. I'm sent by Jesus. And so notice what Jesus says. Don't, don't get confused, disciples. You received without paying. Therefore, give without pay. Right? They didn't pay Jesus. Right? Later in the book of Acts, someone's going to try and, get, try and buy what the apostles have. But at this point, the disciples didn't, didn't pay for it. They hadn't earned it. They hadn't deserved it. And so Jesus is making clear that they're aware. you're not going out on a money mission. Financial gain is not on your radar. It's not to be on your radar at all. You're not to endeavor to profit from this authority. I'm giving you great authority, but it's not so that you might be, be built up and, and get rich. You're to give freely because you've freely given. You didn't pay for it, so you're not going to get from giving it. Personal gain has no place in this ministry. They're extensions of the compassionate care of the good shepherd. And not were they to give freely, not only that, but also their preparations were to be minimal. So he continues, you received without pain, so give without pay. But he continues, don't, don't make elaborate plans for this mission. Verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the labor deserves his food. And so the point here is he continues saying, don't, don't go to excessive lengths to prepare for this. You don't need to spend a week packing for this vacation. You need, you need to go as you are. This is an urgent mission, and you need to go. Don't concern yourselves with the money you might need or, or the bag to take all your stuff or your extra shirt or your extra sandals or a walking stick. You don't need any of those. You need to go. In, in highlighting the things that they must not take on this journey, Jesus is conveying to them the nature of this mission, right? Jesus is the one who readily acknowledged his homelessness, Right? I have nowhere to lay my head, he would tell those who wanted to follow him. And so he's saying, hey guys, just go. You're not going to have lavish preparations. You don't need to prepare for what, what you need. You're going to go. I'm sending you out as my extensions. The mission is the same. You are laborers. You're on my mission. And as laborers of me and my father, right? when he says the labor deserves his wages or the labor deserves his food, he's simply saying, as you go, if you're working for God, he's going to meet your needs. It's not your job to prepare and, and, and expect what unexpected things might come. You're to go and trust the one who you're laboring for is going to meet your needs. As laborers, they must leave abundant room for the abundant provision of God. They're to make no elaborate preparations. That God would surely supply their needs is unspoken here. It's the unspoken thought. They're not to rely on their own resources and ingenuity. Surely they can rely on their employer to supply the things they need. That's the point there. That don't, don't worry about what you're going to need. You go and your needs will be met, which is how he continues in verse 11. In these last verses, as Jesus, he addresses their accommodations, and he says, here's what you're to do. You're going to go town to town. 
And when you enter a town, you look for a worthy person to stay with. Hospitality was, was uh, an essential there. As they're going from town to town, they have to have a place to stay. And so he's saying, here's how you're going to find a place. Look for a worthy person. And he doesn't really give any further qualifications of what it means to be a worthy person, but it's safe to assume when you go, be cautious about where you stay. Be cautious when deciding who to accept hospitality from, where to make your lodging. When you find a worthy person, stay there. Accept that as the Lord's provision. Don't look for an upgrade. Notice he says that when you enter the house, but when you find a worthy person, stay there until you leave. Don't look for an upgrade. Well, also don't take the first place offered to you, right? Right? There's discernment needed. Whenever they find a particular place, they're to stay there and accept it as the Lord's provision. It's not for their own benefit. They're there for the mission that they've been sent on. They're to go and accept God's provision for them. It's not for personal gratification or preference. I mean, imagine, this is a hypothetical, but imagine Peter, James, and John being welcomed in the first village they go to by a widow with a small place to lodge. And so all three of these are, are, they're going together and they're sharing a really small room and maybe Peter snores really loudly. Maybe he has that CPAP machine. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about and it's impossible to sleep with them, right? Maybe that's Peter. And like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that we're in this room. Or, or maybe James takes a really long time getting ready in the morning in the bathroom. Like, oh my gosh, we have to share a bathroom with, with him? And, and then they're like, okay, we're just doing it. The Lord provided. But then the, the, the first mission, the first day they're out proclaiming the kingdom, that there's this wealthy couple with a five-bedroom mansion on the Sea of Galilee saying, hey, come stay with us. Jesus is saying, don't go there. You have a place. Your needs are met. Yeah, it'd be really nice for you. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be really beneficial to have that view in the morning as you're ministering to Jesus. But, but that's not the purpose of this mission. Don't worry about it. Don't always look for an upgrade. Find a place to stay. Find a worthy person and, and trust the Lord and carry out your mission in that town until it's time to move on. Be satisfied and content with what's provided for you. I think that's the, 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 the heart behind this. Look for a worthy person. And, and if they receive you, then, then good. But if they don't, then don't stay there. I mean, I think that the other thing to notice here, as Jesus is talking about their accommodations and, and about finding a worthy person, part of how they're to understand if a per- person is worthy or not has to do with how they respond to the message. I mean, I don't think you can separate that. Look at, look at verses 12 through 14 again. Jesus assumes there's going to be two responses to these disciples and their message. So as they try and enter a town and, and look for a place to stay, there's going to be two responses to whether they're going to be hosted or not. And there's going to be two responses to the message they proclaim. And he says, hey, if there's a worthy person, let your peace come upon it. Yes, let, stay there. Receive their hospitality. That's one response. However, if it is not worthy... Let your peace return to you, meaning don't stay there. But notice he continues verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. In other words, if you find an unworthy place or person, which in this context is refusing to listen to the apostles, refusing to listen to their message to be open and receptive to it. When that's the case, Jesus says it will be the case. But when that's the case, you just move on. You shake off the dust from your feet, which would have been an act of judgment. And then you, you move on. And so part of determining or discerning a worthy person or household is how they respond to the gospel of the kingdom. 
And we're going to see more of this in, in next week's verses, but here in verses 12 through 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that some people aren't going to receive their message. They will face opposition. They must not think that they're authorizing their message when they've been commissioned that they're going to face only welcome reception because that's not going to be the case. They're going to be rejected and people are going to refuse to hear them. And so as Jesus is sending them out, the the main point here in these verses is they're to bless and partner with those who would receive them in their message, but they also must be prepared to move on from those who refuse them in their message. They were on a mission and they were not being sent out at this point to spend months and years building relationships with those who reject Jesus. That's not their calling at this point. Their specific mission is urgent. They're to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And if they're rejected, they move on. And notice the last verse of our passage today, verse 15. Notice how Jesus ends this section. There's a cost that comes with rejecting these disciples. Notice verse 15. Truly or verily, I say to you, this is Jesus saying to his disciples, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, Jesus' statement is very clear. He's highlighting the great cost that comes with rejecting these disciples on this mission. And he highlights their great, the great cost by contrasting their judgment, right? That town, he's talking about the town that refuses these disciples, which would, which would entail them refusing this message, He contrasts their judgment on the great day of judgment with the judgment of the town of Sodom and the town of Gomorrah. And so the judgment of the individuals and towns who reject the disciples and their message, those who refuse to accept them and their message, are contrasted with the most evil cities in the entire Old Testament. I mean, think about that. You can read about Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. But suffice it to say that these two Old Testament cities were the paradigm of wicked cities. In in Old Testament categories, a wicked city was Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of their great sin in Genesis 18, 19, because of the clear display of their their wickedness, specifically, it's interesting, it's their lack of hospitality is highlighted in the Genesis account. They refuse to show hospitality, which is what Jesus is calling these disciples to do. But regardless, their great sin is met with complete destruction. Their evil is the, their, their end destruction. It leads to their destruction. God destroys them because of their great sin. And so the category of Sodom and Gomorrah is evil people will be punished permanently and completely. And they were wicked. Let's not be unclear. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, evil cities. But as great as their sin was, as gross and as wicked as they were, Jesus here, King Jesus, the Lord himself, says that those who reject his disciples, his messengers, and their message, those who refuse to respond to these messengers and and this message of the kingdom those people will face a judgment which the, which the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah will pale in comparison to. I mean, think about that. The great day of God's judgment will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who refuse the call of the king and his kingdom. I mean, that is a striking statement. 
the judgment will be in light of these individuals, these towns will face divine judgment on the final day because of their refusal to receive the disciples and their message. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. And so I, w- I want to end with, with our last point or our application here from this last verse. And I just want to convey without, without any confusion that there is great danger of rejecting Christ. There's a great danger that comes with rejecting the message of the gospel. In the person and the work of Jesus, in his life and his ministry, in his commissioning of these 12, we see that Jesus issues a call. And it's a call not just to hear, but it's a call to which we must respond. And it's the call to repent. The the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message of the 12. That's the message of the disciple of Jesus. That's the message of the kingdom. And so these 12 go out and the followers of Jesus throughout all the history of time have been saying, repent, the kingdom's here. Respond to the message. Return to the Lord. Trust in the king. Follow the king. It's a message that God has done something to fix the problem with the world. God has done something to fix the problem with you and your heart and me and my heart. God has acted, specifically, the king has come. And the king, not only did he come, the king was crucified for your sins and my sins, for the sins of his lost sheep, that we might be made right with God and be members of his kingdom, part of his people. This is the message of good news This is the message of urgent news. And it comes with the authority of the Lord himself. This isn't me saying, hey, you guys should make this decision and follow Jesus. The authority isn't from me behind here. This is the authority from God himself, from the Lord himself, which means if you turn your nose and say, no, thanks, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting the God who made you. You're rejecting the Lord himself. The refusal to heed the call of the kingdom is to put yourself even further, as it were, under the divine wrath of God. Friend, here's the difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and now. Sodom and Gomorrah heard a message of wrath and judgment. They didn't hear the message of Jesus. The gospel is a message of wrath and judgment. Make no mistake. We all stand under the curse of sin. We all are heading headlong into God's wrath and judgment. That is part of the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is also a message of forgiveness and mercy. It won't do to dispense of the wrath of God in favor of the love of God. That that doesn't work. In scripture, the love of God and the threat of punishment are often side by side. The two work in in cohesion. They work together. And so the message of God's judgment, the message of the kingdom is judgment is coming, but God has made a way for you to be delivered. The message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's final word. There's no other word coming. It's his final word. It's it's centered in the work and person of Christ. And so this message that is proclaimed throughout by the 12 and and has continued to be proclaimed by the Christian church throughout the ages is a message that demands a response. It's a message of God being patient with you. 
It's a message of God extending mercy to you. And so I just want to ask you this morning, have you responded to the message? Have have you turned from your sin? Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in the king? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Because apart from him, there is no hope for you. His judgment is sure, but his love is strong. He's made a way for you. And so for you now to hear the good news of the, me- of the message, to hear that God has sent his son to die for you, to be crucified and raised again, to offer you eternal life, for you to hear that message and to say, no, thank you. When you stand before the Lord, you have no ability to say, I never knew. You know, and what are you going to do with it? There is a call. And there's a cost for rejecting Christ and the gospel. And so may you never, ever excuse not knowing in this church. Second point of application, I'm not going to say any much about this, but the reality of opposition, that, save that for next week, right? We, we must not be deceived in thinking that oppositionless ministry exists, that, that following Jesus is oppositionless. Jesus was opposed at almost every turn and his followers will be also. More on that next week. Last point of application that I'll make as we close. Simply this, the role of disciples in the ministry of Jesus. So as Jesus sends out his 12, his ministry is expanding. As I mentioned, there there are 12 mini Jesuses invading the towns and cities around Galilee. And in a sense, they're taking the region by storm. The, The kingdom has arrived and it's advancing through the ministry of Jesus and those that he's commissioned. And so the role of the disciples in ministry is is, is the principle that's established here, which is simply this. As followers of Jesus, we are still his representatives. And so if you're a follower of Christ, the principle that applies to these disciples applies to you in that you still carry out his mission and ministry under his authority. You, you are still a, a mini Jesus ministering among the lost sheep. And while the harvest is still plentiful and, and the workers are still needed, The reality is every Christian in this whole world is on our team ministering as many Jesuses, which is encouraging to know all over the world, there's brothers and sisters who are following Jesus and aiming to help others follow Jesus. All over the world, proclaiming, people are proclaiming the message of the kingdom that the lost sheep might return home. I mean, that's good news. So so as you pray for, for workers to be sent, also pray for the workers who are laboring, And so part of the application is is to recognize and be encouraged, but also part of the application is simply for us to consider our life. If If you are a follower of Christ, this passage presents you and me with an opportunity to consider how we are continuing the ministry of Jesus. In your life, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, how are you continuing, how are you serving as an extension of the ministry of Jesus? Are our lives driven by a desire to see others encountering the compassion of Jesus and the message of the gospel? Is that what drives you? Do you want to see the lost sheep, the harassed and helpless sheep, meet the good shepherd? And do you live out your life that that might be accomplished? Or maybe an even more important question is, is your life driven by your encounter with the compassion of Jesus and the message of the gospel? Does the gospel motivate you to go out and see others follow him? If, if you're following Jesus, you have encountered the compassionate shepherd who gave his life for you and now has commissioned you. 
And so if you're not commissioning well, you need to remember what you've been commissioned by. What is the basis of your commission? It's that Jesus gave his life for you and calls you to do it. And he gives you the power. The reality is that the church is the plan for the world. Did you know that? The church is the plan for the world. And it's not lacking power or authority. Jesus commissioned his church with his authority. We lack nothing to accomplish what he's called to. And the hope, brother, sister, the hope that we endeavor upon is that the church will never be conquered. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And, and so we can, we can go out knowing that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to our king. And we minister under his authority. Let me pray for us as we close.